I can see that our, you know, disparities in health outcomes based on race, ethnicity, based on income status, based on disability status, based on the presence or absence of mental illness are huge and haven't improved even as the best of medical technology has served to improve the life expectancy and the outcomes of people at the top of the income bracket. And what I love about this opportunity and the company that we're building at CityBlock is that we are taking big bets, we're taking resources, and we are hiring like people at the top of their game from a whole host of different disciplines, I'm putting them in a room and giving our best shot at solving a really hard problem. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. I first met Toyana Jai watching her give a talk at the NCQA Quality Talks event. The intellect, empathy, and authenticity were remarkable. I later learned that these are the words that everyone who knows her would choose and that she is universally loved for her skills as a physician and for humanity and helping those most in need. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chalitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David, hey, I wanted to... Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm good, David. Awesome, Lisa. Uh, I can barely recognize you, uh, and I wanted to laud you for your recent weight loss of 80 pounds. Holy cow, I, too, have lost 80 pounds. Repeatedly lost the same 20 pounds four times. Uh, so tell me, what what have you learned from this experience? Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is I did describe um, in a recent Forbes piece uh, my experience in 2018 um, after essentially a lifetime of uh, yo-yo dieting, um, you know, it happens. So I, I um, did a combination of a, uh, a diet and exercise, who knew? Um, this is a low-carb approach um, that uh, done by Verta Health, which also included, you know, sort of medical advice and coaching. And I think the key components were, um, and then daily exercise, which isn't part of Verta, but it was, um, it seemed to be helpful, um, was I found the coaching and the encouragement and the, and the helping you figure out about uh, sort of challenging situations in advance, like holidays or f- your family events or whatever, and, and sort of the anticipatory management was helpful. I thought that you, you mounted your sort of your, your ketones daily, which I found really helpful. And then I think that the that's sort of the daily exercise to keeping you at it. But I think the most important thing that I learned was that it doesn't feel like, oh, there, it's all good. It's, it's absolutely like this daily battle ongoing every single day. And just sort of the amount of attention and focus and sort of ongoing attention um, uh, and it requires is, uh, I think, striking. Well, it is. A, it's a remarkable accomplishment, I Thank must you, say. Um, so back to the subject of today's show. Absolutely. I'm Toyan. so excited for today, by I the know, way. I know. It's really cool. This is a very interesting company that, that you work for an interesting person. Um, but when she was a kid, Toyan's career goal was to be the boss of something. <laughs> Drawn to power suits, she wanted to tell people what to do and be an unspecified boss lady. She may be a boss now, but her soft side is definitely as much in evidence as her authority. And Toyin's path to her current role as chief health officer of City Black Health took a route through public health and medicine where the power suit is rarely seen. Welcome, Toyin. So great to have you here. Thank you. Really nice to be here. And do you ever get to wear a power suit? No, thankfully. I realize that I have no desire to do that anymore at all. I can't, I can't imagine what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. I know. Thank God it's uh, business casual all the time here in California. Even at JPM? Yeah, even at JPM. Wow. I know. So you grew up in Kenya, the eldest of three girls, but said you were raised like a boy. What did you mean by that? Um, well, I think... Where I grew up and in the context in which I grew up, uh, the sort of sexism and um, the different sort of expectation sets of people based on their gender was very obvious to me. 
Um, and, and it still pervades, as you know, that there are globally, there's huge discrepancies between kind of male and female investment in education for boys versus girls, yeah. um, the social worth that is placed on girls versus boys. And I was really fortunate that both my parents probably at the time didn't have the language. to. They probably wouldn't have self-identified as feminists, but they very much acted in that way. Um, and, and they invested in myself and my sisters. They invested in educating us. They invested in um, making sure that we felt empowered and that we had something that was worthwhile to say and to contribute. Um, and in really making sure that we were in, independent and autonomous and kind of equipped to go out and choose our own paths. And that was not the norm, I think, for girls in Africa. How do you think that they were so different than so many people in the environment that they were in? Do you have any idea on that? It's so fascinating. I ask myself this all the time. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, my father is is just naturally incredibly gifted. He's really quite brilliant and managed to win scholarships to kind of move himself out of a really impoverished upbringing to being a physician, you know, working internationally, having, you know, himself a really huge and important career. Um, my mother is uh, is not quite as sort of classically, um, from a career perspective, didn't have quite the same trajectory, but um, but is really smart and thoughtful and has a really high EQ. And I think that they were both just remarkably curious and um, and insightful enough to, to draw their own conclusions of the world. Um, and also, you know, they, they happen to have three daughters and um, and just didn't have, a, I think, a counterfactual against which to to um, to raise us. And so that, that just sort of informed our upbringing. That's awesome. Yeah. So I love the story you told me about how you came to the U.S. to attend Stanford. Um, and the reason you picked Stanford was because of the welcome packet. <laughs> Can you tell us about that story and how that experience? Sure. So um, so you, you probably hear a little of it in my accent, um, which is often hard to place, but I went to British schools um, my whole childhood. And so um, my and private schools in Kenya and so all of my colleagues were, were, um, graduated high school and went to schools in England where you have to pick your profession early and you have to kind of know what you want to do. And people go into the careers immediately after finishing high school. Um, and, um, and my father was very adamant that I was too young and still hadn't kind of formed an idea of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be to decide that I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And he was a huge proponent of the liberal arts education system in the United States. Um, and so he pushed me and my sisters to come to the U.S. And I was, you know, I'm, I was 15, 16, 17. I didn't want to be the only kid doing the only weird thing. I didn't want to be so far away from my friends. And so I rebelled and rebelled um, and reluctantly, you know, took the SATs on a weekend and applied to schools and was very ambivalent about the whole thing. And I, then I got the package, um, the welcome package from, from Stanford, which says, I mean, it's just like such grandiose language. It was like, you know, for all of the nights that you worked and all of the sweat that you put in, we salute you. We think you are one of the best and brightest. And, you know, it was beautifully written. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I am all <laughs> smart. And someone thinks I'm smart. Um, and someone thinks I'm capable. And someone thinks that I'm worthy of this remarkable opportunity. And for me, that was... Um, that was really, that was unique. That was not, um, that was not something I was used to. I was, you know, I, I was sort of a good student, but never the best. Um, really tenacious, you know, quiet, hardworking, um, uh, but not ever the top of my class. And so to have, to receive this packet that talked about me in terms that no one had ever talked about me in was really compelling. And um, it was sort of seductive. So you said that while you loved much of what you experienced at Stanford, the culture 
was tough for you. Um, so you were stressed out and competitive and that you had to confront things like uh, finding out you were black, uh, for instance. Um, talk about that a little bit. Because, I mean, once you're in Stanford, mean, my perception uh, is that once you're at Stanford, you're, you're Yeah, sort the hardest of, part's getting in. Yeah, you're <laughs> part of the club, you know. Um, but it sounds like it's not quite that straightforward. It wasn't for me. And it might be for others. But that was, you know, for, for many of my colleagues, I think that's fair, right? Like this is, this for them was the culmination of a very focused path of really hard work. Um, many of them were, you know, students whose parents and grandparents had gone to Stanford, and this is the thing they'd strive for. I sort of, you know, with very little information, applied to a whole bunch of universities, happened to get into this one. They seemed to think I was fabulous, and so I showed up. Um, and so it didn't feel hard, actually, even though if you think about it in retrospect, um, you know, the getting on a plane and flying, you know, 6,000 miles away from my family um, to live in a country I'd never lived in before, as in, you know, as a grown-up, but that was hard. Yeah, that sounds like it might be. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is pre-Skype, and so I had those little calling cards that would, you know, run out right in the middle of your your, your very deep confession or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was hard, um, but culturally, I found it really difficult. I mean, I, gr- I grew up in a very, very diverse community, um, uh, you know, surrounded by Africans, by uh, Europeans. Um, there's a large uh, population of folks of British descent in, living in the U.S. There's a huge international, rather in, in, uh, living in Kenya. There's a huge international community. Um, we were like multilingual, multicultural, and um, race wasn't really a thing. It just wasn't a salient part of my upbringing. Um, you know, obviously we thought about and learned about colonialism, and we learned about um, sort of. Uh, Economic um, injustice was a huge, huge feature for me, you know, seeing the disparities between kids like me and kids who had, you know, not a pair of shoes to wear and, and no food to eat. I mean, that was really salient. Um, but race as a construct was not something I had ever thought about or really ever reckoned with. And so that was hard um, to sort of un- to, to land here and be part of a system which I did not understand. Um, there were lots of cultural references, like small things, like I'd never watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And like that was like like people <laughs> exactly, and I was like I have no idea what people are talking about. Um, and so there's all these sort of like inside <laughs> jokes and cultural references that were really complicated. Um, uh, and um, and actually that was where for the first time I felt like people did have different expectations of me on the basis of what I looked like. Um, you know, I, I multiple times had lecturers and professors say oh, but you speak English so well. And I was like, for what? I, that's my language. I grew up speaking English. I, like, I went to a British school. Like, why are you surprised? <laughs> At the risk of incurring someone's wrath, I'm going to push back on that. Um, I, I, I mean, nothing to do with where I, you just seem really articulate for anybody. I don't know. I, I don't think you have to invoke anything special. <laughs> as you were describing things, I'm like, wow, I would love to have the ability to speak as clearly as you do. So I'm not, I, 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 you might give yourself some credit for being on <laughs> any standard uh, remarkably articulate. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, maybe I should have been more charitable. I don't know. It sometimes, somehow the way that, the way that it, it came over felt is like, it seems like a cause of surprise. Um, that was a sort of mismatch of expectations. Got it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the sort of the, West Coast kind of so chill vibe. As I'm saying to Lisa, I'm 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 kind of a I'm an East Coast person. Everyone's like, oh, I didn't work that hard. I didn't study for this test. Perfectly described. That's exactly it. <laughs> it's okay to 
work hard. Like that was my that's my thing. Yeah, and and it's yeah, no, totally faux like faux cash. Like everyone, like you have the most uptight people here. It's like, oh, but I don't wear a tie. I guess that makes you casual, right? So right, and yeah. and I'm like, you know, that that was my one thing. It's like I'm like I work really hard and I care a lot, and like that was not cool at Stanford. <laughs> and I was like, but why not? I think it's good to apply yourself and to work really hard and to be stressed about the outcome and to care about it. Um, and everybody did, of course. They just didn't think that they could say that they did, which made me feel like I was either dumber than everyone else because I had to work so much harder than everyone else was saying that they were working, or that we just had a kind of that's so that's so funny and 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 definitely resonates. Although I'm sure I would have been in the um, uh, East Coast. I, I don't think I ever did the. I don't think I ever pulled off the chill thing. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was luck. So so now here's the thing. Now, I guess this could be especially challenging because you actually um, were not hanging out with the chillest of the chill people, right? No. You were pre-med? Yeah, yeah. And then human biology. How did you wind up uh, focusing on that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think um, I, I really like people. Um, I'm introverted by nature, but I really, I, I really, I'm just, I like humans. I like understanding stories. Um I liked, I wrote a lot um, at that phase in my life. And so just sort of, I read a lot of fiction. I wrote a lot of fiction and poetry and um, the art and science, um, particularly of the human biology major, the way they've constructed it at Stanford. Um, while I was there, it was sort of a combination of anthropology and psychology and hard science. It was really appealing to me. Um, I, I was toying with the idea of going to medical school because it was a pretty concrete thing. Um, and being a doctor was, was something that I could, you know, I could tell people I wanted to be a doctor and, and they would all sort of nod approvingly. And it seemed like a pretty straightforward trajectory. Um, and I was at the time, I think, still figuring out how to, how to kind of engage and continue to nurture the more creative side of my brain and my personality while still doing science. Um, so actually, the Humbio major was a great fit for me. You also talked, though, about the death of a childhood friend that kind of got you interested yeah. in the detail of medicine. Yeah. Yeah. When I was um, when I was about 15, um, so he would have been 16, a very, very close friend of mine um, was in a car accident and was uh, was essentially brain like severely brain injured and eventually was declared brain dead and, and passed away. But there was a there was a sort of it was it was really quite a um, seminal experience for me. Um, you know, where I grew up, uh, death and poverty and ill health were ubiquitous. And so it wasn't the first time I'd confront, confronted death. Um, it wasn't the first time that a, a loved one or a close relative had been sick and passed away. Um, but this is particularly hard for me, partly because of the science of it. Um, I remember visiting him in the hospital and he looked himself. I mean, he was on a respirator. He was, um, you know, he was being sort of maintained with medications, but he looked, his body looked animated and yet his brain was, was non-functioning. Um, and I, as part, I think, of actually my grief process, in retrospect, again, I was sort of so in it, I didn't know what I was doing. I spent the better part of a summer, actually, just reading everything I could get my hands on about traumatic brain injury and brain death and understanding how your lungs could continue to function and your heart could continue to beat and yet your brain was functionally dead. Um, and I got so into the weeds of trying to understand the physiology of it and the science of it, I think, as a way to work through my grief. Um, or maybe just keep myself distracted. And when I came out of that period, I was just really interested in the science. Um, and that was kind of the first for me. I'd been a good student and I was good at science, but I never had a passion for it. Um, and ironically, actually coming out of that experience, I was 
I was in awe of the body and of the mechanics of the body and of all of the small and incredible things that have to be in, in homeostasis to keep us alive. And, um, and, and that, I think that's part of the, the, where the art and the poetry for me kind of intersected because in many ways, isn't that, doesn't that make human life even that much more sacred and wondrous and kind of inexplicable um, when you know just how tenuously it's all being held together? What you're saying absolutely reminds me of this magnificent, among, very, among many magnificent pieces that my friend Sid Mukherjee wrote. Um, he was about, about the passing of, uh, the, of his father, yeah. but, how, um, but, but in the context of homeostasis and how it goes slowly and then quickly. And there, there seems to be uh, sort of a, a lot of commonality in, in what you're sharing and what he's written about. He's such a beautiful writer, too. And yeah, he's one of my favorites, for sure. Um, there's a whole kind of um, group of, of physician writers who are just just so compelling at kind of bridge that intersection. So you were, the, you know, when you left Stanford, your, your funny rebellion was that when all your friends went off to startups, you launched into public health, first in San Francisco <laughs> and later in Sierra Leone. And did you ever feel like you were missing out when you looked at your friend, Stanford friends or were you confident you'd gone in the right direction? Um, I don't I, I'm not a, I'm not a big one for regress or for um, for film. I think this is part of my personality. Like I'm so practical. I've got my head down. Um, and just getting stuff done. It doesn't occur to me that that um, that there could be a better or different choice in the moment. Very frequently, um, particularly when it pertains to how I choose to to live my life. And so, so no, I was I, the whole. I I often joke like the whole Silicon Valley thing totally passed me by when I was in in college. Like I was busy trying to find meaning in the world and trying to find art and learn science and. My friends were off, you know, signing their first jobs in the in the sort of in, in the valley post undergrad with nothing but a bachelor's degree to their name, and you know, um, launching these huge and really fascinating careers in a completely different space. And it just, for me, sort of social service, public health, um, community based work was always what I knew I was going to do. Um, the one time I will tell you that I felt regret was when I. Um, uh, I think it was probably after medical school, before residency sometime, met up with some friends who were in the same cohort as me. And um, and someone was complaining about, you know, how their bonus at J.P. Morgan was like really small this year. Um, and, you know, they were only going to get 50K or something. And I was just like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so poor. My, like, oh, wow. And I realized that, they, you know, they had a decade of earning potential ahead of me. And I was like, oh, we are living completely different lives. And, yes, you can buy me dinner. Um, but, 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 but to that end, I mean, you, you have some of the satisfactions. You are a physician and you, and you still practice. Um, um, and I was wondering if your what you just were talking about about the being about sort of being fundamentally sort of pragmatic, is that what drew you more to the operational and business side of medicine? Um, I think that's that's part of it. Certainly, um, I think it's also just that that when you when you take a step back and ask what we're trying to solve for, and and you know on the individual basis, it's, it's I want my patients to be healthier, to live lives that are more fulfilling. I want them to feel, you know, safe and respected. Um, and then I think about all of the, the things that influence that on an individual basis. It was very obvious to me that, um, that my medical knowledge was a very small input and that the things that really did input their outcomes and well-being were far greater than me hmm, and then the, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes I would spend with them on an annualized basis and that they were just more interesting problems in many ways because they were so individualized. 
the how do you how do you kind of create an ecosystem to support a person? How do you build a, a, an understanding of what they need? How do we deliver services with high fidelity, with high quality across um, multiple different um, uh, spaces, across multiple different types of needs? Like that stuff is super interesting, and that for me, I think, is also part of where the art and the science kind of came together. Um, where I can, you know, I, I like the medicine. I really enjoy it. Um, it's it's not particularly these days, even as the just the plethora of information that one person has to try to hold their arms around, it just proliferates. But we also have access to, you know, to up to date and to other online resources to help us figure out what best practice is. And when you start to unpack and realize that the best practice is based on studies that were done on patients who don't look like my patients, they were people who had much more um, capability to be adherent to medications. There are people who tended not to represent the diversity in various domains of my patients. Um, you start to lose a little bit of faith in the idea that as long as I pick the right answer out of the medical textbook and write the right prescription, this person's going to be fine and realize that there are so many other factors influencing them. And actually, there are much more interesting factors and there are much more creative factors. And, um, and you know, there's a way for me to take what I know about the medicine and and, and apply what I I'm hoping to learn about humans um, and about systems and put those together to create hopefully a better outcome for someone. Have you ever met Alex Drain? I have not. Uh, we'll have to put you two guys together. That would be a match made in heaven. Um, so all in all, you rejected the Stanford lifestyle, but here you are at a startup <laughs> that spun out of Google Labs of all places, City Block Health. Uh, what the hell happened? You know, um, what what drove you to this these depths of depravity <laughs> <laughs> that culminates in the JPM conference, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I um, sometimes ask myself the same question. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, how did I get here? I mean, honestly, there there are no other circumstances that I can really envision um, in which I would be, you know, co-founding a venture-backed startup, except with the group of people that I'm working with today and focus on the problems that we're trying to solve today. And frankly, in the ecosystem, both the payment structure and the policy framework that we're in today. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, just a confluence of all of these really interesting um, uh, environmental factors. And, um, and it's exactly where I want to be. I mean, I think the way to sort of unpack the answer is that I tried the, I tried the types of tools and types of approaches that you would expect a person like me to try, right? So I, you know, I trained in a federally qualified health center, worked at um, Safety Net Hospital, um, serving, you know, the most underserved population in Boston. Um, then I moved to a nonprofit community-governed health plan um, focused on um, building integrated systems of care for people who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. And in all of those places, I picked up so much, and I, I, I was able to find like complete alignment with my values and my mission and my um, my sort of innate desire to serve underserved communities. And also the other part of me, the pragmatist in me that said, okay, this is beautiful and wonderful. It works only here, only for these thousands of people. Um, the part of me that says, like, I'm pragmatic and I can see the data and I see that there are 60-odd million people in the United States alone who are on Medicaid or Medicaid and Medicare who have complex needs, who are getting substandard services and who are, who are exposed to poor outcomes. I can see that our, you know, disparities in health outcomes based on 
um, race, ethnicity, based on income status, based on disability status, based on the presence or absence of mental illness are huge and haven't improved even as the best of medical technology has served to improve the life expectancy and the outcomes of people at the top of the income bracket. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I just didn't believe that you could chip away incrementally at this through through the, the types of places that I had been. And what I love about this opportunity um, and the company that we're building at CityBlock is that we are taking big bets, um, we're taking resources, and we are hiring like people at the top of their game from a whole host of different disciplines, um, putting them in a room and, and giving our best shot at solving a really hard problem um, with an eye to scale, which means we're thinking about technology. Let me ask you about that. So you're standing bet- between a bunch of soft and fuzzy social workers on the one hand and a hardcore team of technical engineers on the other. How do you get them to work together, communicate, relate to each other, and move the whole ball forward? It's just, I mean, it's the million, bazillion dollar question that we're grappling with today. Um, I think we've done a a pretty good job so far. There are a ton of things I would do differently, obviously. Um, So much learning along the way, but it has been really interesting. I mean, we... In the beginning, we used to um, we used to have what we called our product clinical jams, which was literally you know eight people, which was kind of the sum total of the company's employees at the time, yelling at each other for hours on end because we did not speak the same language and we just fundamentally couldn't understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we had to break everything down. And part of I think what has been so critical is cultivating a culture of curiosity where the the answer to everything is why, and we just keep saying why and keep saying why until we get down to some common denominator that everyone understands. Um, is it, you know, the the great debate about how whether we needed a progress note in Commons, our platform, for example. So um, so Commons is, is the platform that we've built to integrate uh, data across multiple domains for our members that we serve so we can actually understand what's going on with them um, from claims to electronic health record to social, social needs and social capabilities that we collect through pharmacy. Um, it's really that holistic view. Um, and it drives action. So we have built in our member action plans, which are sort of individualized care plans and task management and communication and calendaring all into the platform. And we have this huge debate where I, you know, I, I sort of said, we need a progress note. And the technologist said, but why? <laughs> well, because we do, because every electronic health record or every clinical data record has a progress note. But, but why? <laughs> um, so we can keep track of what we're going to do. It's like, well, well, we have functionality there to do that. I mean, we're, our whole product is built about right action. Well, so that they can see my clinical thinking. Well, okay, but we've talked about, you know, the 360 view of what the member needs and wants. And like, that's encompassed there. Let's unpack it and unpack it. And every so often you hit against these really kind of strongly held, somewhat intractable opinions that are fully, fully influenced by our biases, by where we come from and what we've seen. Um, and being able to unpack those and break them down, it, it just has taken time. It's taken us building a whole different lexicon of our own. It's taken some cross-pollination, which we're working on, where if you have product folks with a clinical, under, with, with more of a clinical understanding and clinical folks with more of a product mindset, you can start to bridge that gap. Um, and it's taken proximity, frankly. You know, we work in 
and interdisciplinary pods where product and operations and clinical all spend time solving problems together. I think that's so interesting. I mean, what you're describing is um, this sort of the teams that, that are needed. And I think that's what so many companies at the sort of health tech interface are actively struggling with because on the one hand, everyone agrees with something that, um, you know, uh, Sue Desmond Hellman told us that the, you know, the answer are teams. Okay, that's great. But in addition, how do you how do you actually have teams so that they're not just sort of two tribes, but that that they're really um, functioning together? And it sounds like you've really worked hard to build that. Was that the most difficult part of building the company? Because you also described creating. It sounds like I, I didn't realize that even you guys, everyone has to recreate one of these integrated databases you're talking about. Just it was sort of sad that that's needed. Yeah. Um, what was the hardest part of building the company of the many different things that sound very hard? Well, um, well, first I would say, you know, we're, we're still at it. Um, and um, yeah. I, I love the, the sort of past tense. Healthcare not solved yet, noticed. Yeah. I love, I love, I love how I'm like, companies built solve the problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Story at 11, we, yeah. You know, we've, <laughs> we've come a tremendous, tremendous distance in the last two years that we've been working on this, um, but it, it's far from solved. Um, uh, I, think, I think that the, the, the sort of building a culture of innovation that, privileges clinical and also privileges product and technology and innovation that's been that's been hard and that and that really does um that spans everything that's that's sort of what we like to call a, you know our ways of being how do we interact with each other how do we communicate with each other what are our sacred cows as an organization in terms of our values and our our approach to work um how do we problem solve how do we do that and then scale and grow and inculcate that in, in additional people we bring onto the team. Um, so that's, that's certainly been one of the hardest things. I think the other, for me, has been, interestingly, this is the most, you know, high-velocity environment I've ever been in. Um, you know, the ability to, to go from, you know, problem or opportunity to solution to, to sort of testing V1 of the solution to iterating to putting it back out in the world. Um, I mean, that is what, what venture-backed companies um, strive for. And, and that was the opportunity that was part of the opportunity that was so alluring to me. Um, and so we're moving incredibly quickly. And also sometimes it feels like not fast enough. There's so many problems I want to solve um, that, um, that maintaining that focus and, you know, landing a few things, um, organizing around a core identity and, and doing that well um, before we take on the rest of the world. That for me personally has been challenging as I look beyond and I look around at, at all the different communities and populations and applications to which I want to to bring our care model and our technology, um, being able to say, okay, these are the things we're gonna do now and this this is the next iteration. Um, that's also challenging when you're when you're so kind of inspired and excited by the work you're doing. So Toyan, I know you're a very serious person about your work, but you're also a very fun loving one. And I love how uh, when I asked you what song personifies you, you said you really want to be jazz, but you're actually crappy pop music. You want to be Sade, but you're more like, uh, you know, Beyonce in her lighter moments, vibe-wise. Where is the disconnect? Is this you still trying to be the sophisticated boss lady uh, or or what? Um, it's a really good question. You know, um, I one of the things I've really found interesting about leadership, and I've been, um, I've been really fortunate to work with an executive coach who is, like, amazing and has helped me come to insights that probably would have taken me much longer to get to. And um, it is one of the things I recommend to sort of all entrepreneurs um, and, and particularly physicians who move into leadership. This is not stuff they teach us. 
Um, but one of the things that I continue to, to find fascinating is, to, to even just sort of objectively, is the dissonance between the person I think I am and the person I am perceived to be. Um, and I think that's always true, right? You know, I, I can have, you know, I could be sitting in a meeting and I am fully engaged and focused and listening, but like the look on my face suggests that I'm like disengaged or unhappy. And I have to like learn to modulate that even if I'm, even if I'm there. And that's sort of a small example. Um, and, and so I want to be, um, I want to be, uh, I want to be able to, um, to temper for the people around me um, so much of the, of the highs and the, the valleys of the work that we're doing um, so that they can have um, what is as close to a seamless ride as possible. And when I think about my job as a leader, it is to help chart a path for the people who work with me, um, the folks who have kind of, um, you know, made sacrifices in many instances, turned certainly turned down other opportunities that would have been lucrative and, and challenging their own way and have really committed themselves to be part of the work that we're doing. And I want to give them as clear a path to the future and then to the work that we are, the outcomes that we're going to achieve as possible. And I want to do that in a way that feels seamless. And what I recognize is that that's just not life. And, um, and for me, certainly in the middle of all of this, um, there are days when I feel truly triumphant, when I come home and it's usually when I've engaged with a member or when we've, you know, solved a, a particularly tricky problem when I'm just like, this is, the most exhilarating work one could imagine. This is so, so wonderful. And then there are other days when I'm like, this is so hard. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Um, <laughs> and I want to kind of fake it until I make it on the hard days. Um, but what I realize is that those two things are it's the yin and the yang. And what my team loves, I think, I hope, and what my team really gets for me is the authenticity of my passion. Um, and and that means that, you know, when I come in in the morning on a Monday and I and I am just full of the story of that person on Saturday who I saw in clinic who told me this was the first time that they ever felt listened to by anybody on their on their medical care team and who told me that the reason why they called us before they went to the emergency room is because they trusted us. Like, that just makes my day and my face lights up. And that is, mm-hmm. that's what people need and want from me. And I, I can't do one without the other. Um and so I want to be jazzed, um, but I'm, you hear it in my voice. I'm like so in this. Um, all the emotions are there. Um, and, uh, and that comes with an upside and it also sometimes means that, um, that when it's hard, I'll tell you it's hard. Um, and I won't, I won't necessarily um, be able to, to, to tell you it's going to be okay, even though I kind of know it will. Um, sometimes I'm not sure how. Well, you know, it's hard to find that groove sometimes, but you'll get there, I'm sure. I'm so optimistic for you and, and for, for City Block. Absolutely. Toyin, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was so much fun to talk to you, as it always is. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Today's guest, Toyin Ajayi, was speaking to us today from the Big Apple. I love how much she cares about people, but still wants to be the hardcore operator. Such a great combination of skills. And um, I just, you know, I wonder, I, I hope in, that it's possible to scale to the best care for the most underserved in the way she aspires to do. It's going to be a challenge. It's, it's, no one would argue that it's a difficult problem, but I mean, you, if there's anyone who you yeah. think would have a chance who could pull together the yeah. people and continue to inspire them, 
Um, I mean, you just can't not leave the conversation with her just feeling, well, geez, yeah, it's really hard. But if someone's going to do it, how could you not bet on her? I know. It's, it's really true. All right. Well, you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show. Thank you very much today. We uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Ciao.